0: In 1994, director Frank Darabont and star Tim Robbins gave the world a prison classic that we didn't know we were looking for.
1: In 2019, Chivas Brothers gives us one of the world's most popular blended
0: scotches. The movie is The Shawshank Redemption. The whiskey is Chivas Regal 12. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and and Whiskey Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1994 film The Shawshank Redemption.
0: And we are also in the middle of one of the most important months of our lives, Bob. Do you know what that month is? The Of our lives, Brad? Of our lives. This is... The September of Scotch! Wow, I loved the Sean Connery accent.
1: Oh, it's beautiful. That was wonderful. Yes, we're in the middle of the September of Scotch. We are trying five consecutive weeks of Scotch. Brad and I have said before, we are Scotch novices. So this is a really uh, exploratory phase for us, and we're really enjoying it so far.
0: Yeah, I am finding myself to be a Scotch aficionado. Aficionado, Mm. thank you. I was really searching for a word there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm really starting to enjoy scotch based on what I've tried with some friends and what we've tried for the podcast. And so, yeah, it's a wonderful month to bring you bourbon lovers an appreciation for a new form of whiskey. I'll tell you what I'm also enjoying, Brad, are the reactions that we're
1: getting for our Fight Club episode, because we are getting many of them. As you know, I am not a fan of the movie Fight Club, and Brad hates me for it. I I mean, I hate you for a lot of reasons. (laughs) And that's just one of them. But we're also getting some feedback from what Brad likes to refer to as film and whiskey nation, including one of our favorite people, our frequent guest host, Jen Lowers. And Jen has actually sent in a reaction to the episode because she says Fight Club is one of her favorite movies. She wanted us to read on air her reaction to the movie Fight Club. So we're just going to take a second here. And I want to say what jen is responding to in our episode and then get our reactions to it brad what do you say i can't wait for her to rip you apart i know one opinion bob has about this movie is that david fincher does not succeed in terms of effectively communicating that marla is the key to everything as the narrator claims in the beginning of the movie i have to say that i completely disagree even though she has very little screen time marla is arguably the most developed character in the movie which helps to highlight her significance The movie starts out with the narrator explicitly saying that the bombs and the revolution all have something to do with Marla. Every time she's on screen, not only is each scene remarkably memorable, but we also learn more information about her personality, as compared to the members of Fight Club and Project Mayhem, who seem like cardboard cutouts resembling one another. Marla isn't in the movie enough because from the perspective of the narrator, she exists more as an accessory or as part of the scenery in the background. At first, during the meetings, she's an annoyance, and then she turned into someone he can't stop looking for and thinking about. She was even inside his ice cave during the visualization, which doesn't get any literally more in your head than that. He wasn't emotionally or mentally able to pursue a relationship with Marla, but Tyler was. That's why we barely see Marla, because she's with Tyler. and We all know the one thing Tyler has asked the narrator to do is never, ever discuss Tyler with Marla. This demonstrates how little the narrator is capable of intimacy, whether it's physical or emotional. That's Tyler's job. That's why we barely see Marla, because she's being largely ignored. This changes as the movie continues, though, as the narrator feverishly retraces Tyler's steps, flying all over the country and staying in the hotels that Tyler stayed at. One of his first thoughts and instincts when he begins to realize the full scope of Tyler's plans is to get home as fast as possible and get Marla far out of town and any major city for that matter. In realizing that his mental illness existed, the narrator is able to open himself up to Marla on an intimate level. At the end of the movie, when they're staring out the large glass window, they first see a reflection of each other before the camera refocuses on the buildings that soon explode and crumble before them. This is the narrator seeing himself in a real relationship, and physically embracing this by literally taking her hand. This is perhaps why he acknowledges you've met me at a very strange time in my life. Not because of the burning buildings, but because of his own emotional walls that have just been demolished. Dude, I, f- Dang, Jen. I feel like Jen just dropped a mic on you. She absolutely did. Like, wow. This So this is one of Jen's favorite movies. And I, I really wish we could have had her in studio on this one because it, what a great point. And actually, I've seen a couple people on our Instagram kind of make a similar point. Uh, look, I completely agree. And I even said it in the episode. I think Marla is the key to everything. Brad, what do you think about it?
0: I think that the next time Jen sees you, she's just going to, like, shank
1: you on the sidewalk and be like, this is for Fight Club. I feel like her words have already shanked me deeply enough.
0: <laughs> They've shanked my pride and intellect. You win this round, Jen. You win this round. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that she brings out a lot of really important points. Um, One of the most important, though, I think is at the end when she points out that, like, that it's his emotional walls that have come crumbling down. And the reason they have come, you know, tumbling down is because he's become aware of his mental issues and he is willing to work on his problems. And I think that's one of the, the most important things of the movie is that he does come to a complete sense of self by the end of the movie. And she Jen points this out in ways that I never would have been able to. So thank you, Jen. Thanks, Jen. Bob, had you ever seen The Shawshank Redemption <laughs> before this this
1: time? You know, I ask you that question every week, Brad, and I feel like this is one of those rare weeks where I probably won't have to ask you if you've seen Shawshank, because somehow this movie over the years has come to be a film that literally everyone has seen at least once.
0: Yeah, this is one of those movies that is absolutely famous just for the fact that it's famous. Do you want to know something funny, Bob? I've only seen this movie once before this. I'm not surprised by that.
1: Yeah, just saw it once. I mean, you know, but but again, like, you fulfilled your social obligation to see the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I, notes, I really did. Yeah, it's one of those films that, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of research on it, and they say that it was a movie that was made by Cable. Something about the fact that it was such a popular like home video rental movie and then when it was sold into cable they sold it at such a cheap rate that it was able to be shown all over the place. And I think that's still true. Like you can turn on the TV and if you flip to TNT or AMC or any of those channels, chances are, you know, if it's a lazy Saturday afternoon, like you're going to find The Shawshank Redemption somewhere on television.
0: Yeah, and it's an easy movie to pick up in the middle. You know, you have Morgan Freeman narrating throughout the entire thing. And like, even if you've only seen it once before, you could just plop down in the middle of the movie and be like, oh, yeah, I kind of know what's going on. You know, Morgan Freeman is guiding me through this whole process. Actually,
1: the website, the Urban Dictionary, has a term called being Shawshanked. And it's when you're (laughs) when you're drawn into something so much that you can't help but watch the rest of it. And I think that's true. Like, you can come into this movie at any point and... Once you're in, you're in. You got to at least watch the guy crawl out of the tunnel to freedom. That's right. And I think to explain what even happened, we need to throw over to our most famous and most favorite segment, Brad Explains. Would you do us the honor of explaining The Shawshank Redemption?
0: So the movie is about a a young married man named Andy Dufresne, who he's very self-confessed, emotionless and kind of acts like a robot. And his wife is cheating on him with a golf pro. And he is convicted of murdering her. And he gets sent to prison. And there he meets this man named Ellis Redding, who goes by Red. And so they strike up a friendship. And the movie, it's really this slow, meandering picture of Andy Dufresne slowly learning how to live in prison Um, The first few years of prison are super hard because he is being attacked by a group called the Sisters. Uh, So they really make his life hell for a few years. The movie really hits a turning point when he is given roofing duty. They go up and they're tarring the roof for a new roof to be put on. And he overhears the head guard talking about how his brother had given him a gift of thirty-five thousand dollars, and and so the guy's talking yeah. about how the IRS is gonna, you know, suck it all away, and they're, you know, they're just gonna take it all, and it's it's all bullcrap. And Andy Dufresne approaches him and basically is like, "Hey, if you gave that money as a one-time gift to your wife, you'd be set." And if you want to, instead of paying a lawyer to do that, I'll set it up for you. And all, I, all I'm asking for is three beers each for me and my coworkers here. And that kind of that propels the movie forward into Andy's relationship with his fellow inmates. And it gets us to the point where at the end of the movie, he's friends with everybody. And he actually has been digging his way out for like 25, 20 or 25 years. And the movie focuses on his escape, and he tells Ellis to meet him, and Red meets him out on this dilapidated boat in the middle of Mexico on the beach. That was that was the best Brad explains I've ever heard. <laughs> it was it was so good, dude. This is a hard Brad explains. Like you t- you explain this movie to me. It meanders. It just kind of wanders around. There's not a lot of. Key things happening other than him roofing the house, like he plays, he 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 writes to the state senate for like six years to get a library, and they finally send him two hundred dollars in a library, and he locks the door to the PA system and he plays the opera for them. Like, how am I supposed to explain that? And Brad explains it just happens. Yeah. So, so you used a word that
1: you said that this movie was a meandering movie. And I think I understand what you're saying, but I think I'd probably use a different word. And it kind of gets back to what we were talking about with how the movie has done so well on cable. And I think the reason that it does so well on cable is that it's a really episodic movie. It doesn't seem like many scenes influence the next scene. It's like, here's one sequence, and then that sequence is over, and it fades out. And then you get the next sequence, and then the next thing happens in Andy's time in prison. And it really seems like this is this movie is perfectly broken up into, like, 15-minute segments. And like you said, Brad, I think it does kind of make the movie feel like there isn't a lot of forward motion or, like, propulsion in this movie, because you get these nice little codas and these emotional punches every 15 minutes. I think, yeah, you're right. Because of that, it is hard to explain this movie, because is it a movie about a guy escaping from prison, or is it more about you know, the camaraderie that he came to find with Red while he was in prison.
0: Yeah, and, and that doesn't make it a bad movie in any way. I just, I, I was really struggling. You asked me to explain it, and I'm like, well, a lot of stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, would you
1: agree that it's like, I think the best word for it is episodic.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it is definitely an episodic movie, and you're right. It does make sense that you could watch a 20-minute segment of it, go to commercial break, and be like, yeah, that was a fun TV show. I mean, movie. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So maybe the best way to talk about the movie then is just to kind of go through it bit by bit because it is so episodic in nature. Maybe we should just kind of start at the beginning. Yeah, I I think that makes sense. So the movie starts uh, with Andy sitting in his car in the driveway of this golf pro that his wife is cheating on him with. And he's really, really drunk and he's got a gun in his hand. And this is intercut with Andy's trial where the defense lawyer is uh, accusing him of murder, And an especially heinous murder because he says that Andy fired eight shots and the revolver only holds six. So he went back to reload and kill uh, his wife and her lover. Now, Andy maintains his innocence, but we never actually see the murder happen. And I think that's really key because for a long period of the movie, there is still the possibility
0: that Andy did commit the murder. Even though he continually refutes that idea and says, like, no, I didn't I didn't actually kill anybody. And I think the way
1: Tim Robbins characterizes Andy is really important because he does play him as this sort of cool, calm, collected banker who keeps to himself, who comes across as kind of arrogant and snooty. And that you really see that in the defense trial. And when Andy is sentenced to consecutive life sentences, the judge looks at him and says, you strike me as a particularly remorseless and icy man, Mr. Dufresne. And I just, I really love that we are kind of on Andy's side from the beginning because we believe him when he says that he's innocent. But just from the beginning of the film, you are given this glimpse into kind of how broken the system is and how easy it is or how easy it could be for an innocent person to become seen as this icy, remorseless murderer.
0: Yeah. And there's something about the way Tim Robbins plays Andy that I love and I noticed it when, you know, the first time somebody asks him about why he's in Shawshank, you know, he says, like, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. And, you know, Morgan Freeman laughs at him and he goes, didn't you know every person in Shawshank is innocent? Right. And he's like, hey, uh, you know, and he yells to one of his guys, "He's like, why are you in here? He goes, ah, oh, the lawyer screwed me. But the funny thing is, Andy never... You know, professes his innocence again in the movie. You know, later in the movie, when a new prisoner comes in and he and Andy is all buddy buddy with the guys already, he asks Andy why he's in. Him. He goes, "Oh, don't you know a lawyer screwed me?" He he has this way. He's almost like a chameleon. He kind of morphs his way into fitting into where he needs to fit into, even though he does kind of come across as a cold fish from the start. And what I love about the way the movie is structured is.
1: That at the beginning of the movie, there's really not a sense of hope. And in a lot of ways, it seems like a real cynical movie because, you know, Andy maintains his innocence and he's still sent to prison on consecutive life sentences. And then they cut to Morgan Freeman's character, Red. And the first time we see Red, he's in a parole hearing. And I think at that point uh, he'd been in prison for either 20 or 25 years on a murder charge. When Morgan Freeman first comes in, first of all, I think he is just fantastic in this movie. But when he first comes into that parole room, you can see that he's kind of nervous. And I think it's because at that point, he really does still have a hope that maybe he's going to get out of here. That really, you know, these people hold the key to his freedom. And he believes that he might be paroled. And when they reject his parole, he goes outside and there's this great shot of him just kind of composing himself. And his face changes And he goes back up and sees the guys, and they're like, oh, hey, Red, how did it go? And he's playing it cool as like, oh, you know, same stuff, different day. And I love the fact that you get that glimpse of Morgan Freeman's character having the wind sucked out of him and then replacing his hurt with this sort of like veneer of, I don't care. It's a cynicism. And I think... At the beginning of the movie, you're there with them. You're saying, you're seeing like, oh, there might not be any hope here. Maybe you do have to be a cynical person to make it through. But as the movie goes on, this theme of hope being something that's worth holding on to really starts to
0: come out. Yeah, I think that as I was watching the movie, I realized that the movie sets you up to think that Andy is going to be content with building his library and building a group of friends in prison. And you start to think that, like, oh, maybe hope isn't necessarily getting out of prison. Maybe hope is just having something to live for even when you're locked up. Mm. And so it, it, I think that really helps the movie in the fact that it, it kind of lulls you to sleep, that you think that Andy's just okay with what's going on. and And eventually you do see that the warden pushes him to, you know, doing what he does. But in the end, I'm really curious, do you think that if the warden hadn't treated him the way that he did, do you think he would have tried to escape? I think that's a good question. And maybe
1: this is a good time to kind of get into what we think of the actors and the characters in the movie, because the character of the warden, Warden Norton... His name is he's played at first as a guy who is kind of hard nosed and, you know, maybe has some shady stuff going on in the background. And as the film goes on, you know, Andy starts to work for the warden in basically cooking the books for the prison and skimming off the top uh, so that the warden is making money off of prison labor. And they're, you know, they're laundering the money. And the farther you get into the movie, the more they kind of make the warden into like a cartoon villain. And that was actually one of my big nitpicks with the movie, my problems with the movie. The warden, you know, you know, he's the antagonist for the whole movie. You know that he's morally corrupted. But I think that there was a difference between when you knew the warden was skimming money and then all of a sudden the warden is like condoning murder. Because, you know, the the new guy that Brad was talking about that comes in towards the end of the film, his name's Tommy. He's a young kid that comes in and has knowledge that Andy actually is innocent and that he can prove who did it. And the warden is so worried about Andy getting out and letting out the secrets of what he's been doing that the warden actually has Tommy murdered. And I think that turn from kind of morally corrupt money
0: launderer into cold blooded murderer
1: really just didn't work
0: for me. Yeah, I think that they move him a little quickly but for me, it worked for the fact that you could see from the very start that he had evil in him. So I guess for me, when that happened, it wasn't a surprise. But does that make sense? Yeah. And and I, I love that they set Andy and the warden up
1: as foils so early in the movie. The first time they really have an interaction, the warden comes into Andy's cell and sees Andy reading a Bible. And he asks Andy, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And what I love... Is what they do with those two verses because it tells you everything you need to know about the relationship between those two Andy says that his favorite verse in the bible is mark 13 35 which is watch for you know not when the master of the house comes and he's referring to the fact that the warden has just shown up you don't know when the warden's going to show up he's basically making a joke and then the warden says oh you know what that's a good one but my favorite one is this and he quotes jesus saying i am the light of the world You know, if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness. And it's this really subtle way that the warden is making a power play. He's basically saying, yeah, you think you're being clever by saying you got to watch out for the warden. But I'm telling you, if you do it my way, you'll be in my good graces. And it gives you a really early glimpse into the warden's kind of Jesus complex or his God complex that he has, and I think that I thought it was a brilliant touch.
0: Once again, proving that people can take biblical texts and twist them to mean what they want them to mean. Yeah, who ever thought that that could happen? Yeah, I I absolutely love that scene. I, that was actually a scene that I marked down as probably one of my favorite. Um, I I think it I think it's important for understanding the the nature of the relationship between Andy and Warden Norton. I I mean, you just see everything you need to see about that character in that one minute. And And I think that's probably why it didn't totally surprise me when he took him out there and killed him, because you see a man who is more and more willing to protect what he has, because he thinks he's God. You know, by the time Tommy gets there, He's been in charge of the prison for probably 30 to 40 years. He considers himself a god that nobody can touch him and that not only can nobody touch him, but he has ultimate authority over these dirty, rotten prisoners. So let me ask you about this. The
1: the guy that played Warden Norton, his name is Bob Gunton. What did you think of his performance in the movie?
0: I really loved him. I, I think that he plays the villain extremely well because he's not over the top. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, he has this ability to have this quiet confidence in himself and in his authority and in who he is that just translate to this menacing figure that you're you're never totally sure what he's going to do, but you're always a little bit afraid of him.
1: You know, and I think that's part of the reason why I don't like the turn into him being kind of a murderer. Before that, he seemed like the kind of guy who could pull strings you know in the legal world or out in the world and really hurt you that way he seemed like a really intelligent clever conniving guy and i think to see him use brute force the way he does in having tommy shot it did kind of make him take a turn as a villain from being this real intellectual threat to andy to being a sort of more imposing physical threat and that's one of the nitpicks i have with the script but Bob Gunton, as Warden Norton, I think, is fantastic. And he really is one of the three lead characters when you think about it, between him, Morgan Freeman, and Tim
0: Robbins. Oh, for sure. And I think one of the things I liked about the scene where he killed Tommy is the benevolent way in which he treats Tommy. you know, he, he the way he says, you know, that that's okay, Tommy. I, I know that you would. You're a good man. Yeah. And then he has him shot like that right there just gives you so much insight into his character. And like you said already, he has a God complex that that is rooted deep within his soul. So let me backtrack then and talk about
1: the other two leads. You know, we've obviously mentioned Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins here. Brad, what did you think about both of their performances? Did you think that one was better than the other?
0: You know, I don't think that either was better than the other. They're very different actors. And like, Tim Robbins plays—well, we already kind of talked about Tim Robbins. He plays Andy as an extremely intelligent individual, and not just intellectually, but I, I think he's extremely socially intelligent as well. You know, he he knows when to back down and and learn how to get along, but he also knows how to fight and stand up for what's right. And I think that the way in which we see him stand up to the sisters— it it almost informs you that that this is a man who will never stop fighting for what's right, and mm. he will never stop fighting injustice and wrongness in the world. And so I think that that little things like that kind of give you insight into his character. And I think Tim Robbins plays them perfectly. He knows how to be be silent when he needs to be silent. He knows how to be soft and quiet. Um, But he's also firm and he stands up for himself. And there's something about the way he plays him that it's an extremely impressive performance. Yeah, I completely agree. And then on the other hand, you have Morgan Freeman. And I actually
1: will say I prefer Morgan Freeman in this movie. I do think part of it is the difference in their characters. I mean, Morgan Freeman gets more punchlines. He's the more expressive of the two characters. Tim Robbins has to underplay his performance. But what I love about Morgan Freeman is that, just like The Warden, he doesn't overdo it. Morgan Freeman can be a very subtle actor, and I think we saw that in Million Dollar Baby, where he was pretty expressionless throughout the movie. And in this film, I was really blown away by how well he uses his face to convey emotion. He was just an absolute magnet every time he was on the screen, and I did think that he he drew my attention more than Tim Robbins did. And again, that may have been out of design, but I came away from this film really really loving Morgan Freeman's performance.
0: Yeah, I think one of the reasons I love Morgan Freeman so much in this performance is because he's a little bit of a stand-in for the audience as far as understanding Andy. You know, he's the one who kind of guides us in our journey of of figuring out who Andy is, what he's all about, and he also is there for us when we're surprised. You know, there's a lot of times where Morgan Freeman can't figure out Andy or why he's doing something, but he's just amazed that he's doing it. And we're in the same boat. And when they when they learn that he escapes, and the warden bursts into you know Red's cell, and he says, "Where is he? Where did he go?" And, and Red just goes, I, "You know, I, sir, I don't know." And yeah. you know, we as the audience have no idea. And and I think that Morgan Freeman does a great job of showing surprise, and anxiety, and fear, and anger, in, in a lot of different ways that that we as audience members would feel if we were in the situation.
1: Yeah, they definitely give him a lot of reaction shots. But what I love is that it's not overdone. And the one that really stuck with me that I made a note of is actually one of the most subtle ones in the movie. And it's after their friend Brooks has gotten out of prison and hung himself. And I want to get to that sequence on its own in a little bit here because I think it's worth talking about. But they get a letter from Brooks in prison that he had written before he killed himself. And Andy reads it. And at the very end of the letter, they kind of pan up and you can see Morgan Freeman's reaction to that letter and to learning of his friend Brooks's demise.
2: He should have died in here.
1: And it's, again, it's so subtle, but this thing that he does where you can see him kind of internalizing and swallowing his emotions and not letting them out. I think he does such a brilliant job of portraying what you have to be like in an environment like a prison where you can't show emotion. And that's actually one of the big features of the, the early part of the movie is that prison is designed to break you, not just from the administration standpoint, but from the other prisoners. And that if you want to succeed, you have to swallow your emotions.
0: For sure. And Morgan Freeman characterizes that absolutely perfectly. Yeah, I would. I would agree. And Brad,
1: after we take our break, I want to come back and talk about this idea of the the code of the prison, what it means to have to swallow your emotions. And I want to get into that Brooks sequence as well. But before we do that, what do you say we try this Chivas Regal 12 year? All right. So today we are trying Chivas Regal 12 year. Now, Chivas Regal is, according to what I've read on the Internet, The second most distributed blended scotch in the world behind Johnny Walker. It is insanely popular. It's a brand that's been around for over 200 years. Uh, It made its way over to the U.S. after World War II and kind of just blew up here. Again, it's a blended whiskey. So much like Johnny Walker Black, you know, your scotch snobs are not going to like this because they like single malts. But this is something that's widely available at a reasonable price point, And it kind of is a whiskey for the masses. Brad, have you had Chivas Regal before? I have never had
0: Chivas Regal before.
1: You know, we're in week three of our September of Scotch, and we've tried two pretty good Scotches so far. So I'm really hoping this continues
0: that trend for us. I really just want us to contact Sean Connery and have him say the September of Scotch for us.
1: I want to have him say Chivas Regal, because I feel like he wouldn't even know Chivas Regal. The shep- September of Scotch. All right, so Brad, what do you say we get into trying this Chivas Regal? What are you picking up on the nose? You know, this honestly comes across as an extremely smooth whiskey. I'm interested to hear what what you think that means. Like, what, what makes you
0: think it's going to be smooth just from the smell of it? It doesn't have a lot of ethanol for me. Mm, okay. I, I think that's the big thing. Whenever you think about whiskeys that aren't smooth... A lot of times they they are younger and have a lot of ethanol still on them, and it's just hard to get them down, whereas this, uh, you know, I, it's an 80-proof whiskey, so A, it's not going to be very strong there, but even on some 80-proof whiskeys, you can still smell the ethanol, and on this one, I'm, I'm not noticing it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a very mild scent, and I think sometimes whiskeys can walk that fine line between mild and something actually being lacking in it. And I think my worry about this is that there's so little on the nose here for me, what it's going to taste like. It is an 80 proof. And I worry that it's going to be lacking something because there's not much of that classic scotch smell to it.
0: Yeah, I'm not really getting any of that. And I'm like, I'm having to shove my nose deep into the glass and, and I'm still not noticing much. I pick up a lot of apple on this. It's very bright and it's pleasant. But like I said,
1: it's just lacking something all the way through. I think I'm only going to give it a five on the nose. I was just
0: thinking the same thing. Probably a five. All right. Why don't we give it a sip? Man, I don't know if there's much happening there. It's not unpleasant, but it's
1: just kind of there. So for me, I think the most direct comparison is going to be the Johnny Walker Black that we tried last week. And I think this has actually leaps and bounds better in terms of taste. It's just as sweet as Johnny Walker Black. like this is a really sweet whiskey but I pick up a lot more spice all the way through and it's not just that sort of like black pepper hot spice that you got on Johnny Walker Black, but lots of really nice baking spices like some I don't I don't know what it would be like nutmeg or something it It's way more complex all the way through than the Johnny Walker Black was. Brad, how would you compare the taste to the Johnny Walker?
0: Man, I I thought the Johnny Walker was much better. I, I am honestly not getting anything that you're saying here. That's really interesting. It may be the glass
1: that I'm drinking out of. Today, I'm drinking out of a glass that kind of has a really wide mouth that kind of like flutes out. And I'm wondering if it's just the way that it's hitting my mouth that's making it seem so much sweeter. But this is like significantly sweeter, significantly spicier and more complex to me than the Johnny Walker was last week.
0: Yeah, I thought that the Johnny Walker had more vanilla tones. Hmm. Uh, th- this one is kind of sweet, but to me, I, I honestly am not picking up almost any distinct flavors on this.
1: Wow, that's really surprising to me. I'm actually going to give it a seven and a half on the taste. Brad, what are you going to give it? I'm going to give it a
0: four on the taste. Wow. I, I do not, like, it's not bad, but I'm not picking up anything. Wow, that's really shocking to me. And I think my
1: positivity for it carries over to the finish as well because the finish, just like with the Johnny Walker, it dissipates really, really quickly. However, when I breathe out afterwards, I get that really wonderful, like, charred barrel smoke. It's not that peaty, scotchy smoke. It's almost that sort of bourbon-y, deep, char smoke. And then the last little thing I get on my tongue is almost like a uh, like a peanut, like a nutty flavor. And it reminds me a little bit of that nuttiness we picked up in the Henry McKenna bourbon. So I'm going to give it a seven and a half on finish. I really love what this scotch is doing for me. And I'm kind of surprised you're not picking up on the same things.
0: Yeah, it's the finish is a little bit better. I I noticed a little bit of the spices that you were talking about on the finish. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know, though. I I guess I just feel like if I'm going to drink scotch, uh, maybe I'm becoming a scotch snob. I want that smoke. I, I wanna I wanna breathe like a stinking dragon, Bob. Well, I'm telling you, like this one definitely has more char
1: than the Johnny Walker did. I'm actually thinking this is better all around than the Johnny Walker was, and you actually scored that fairly highly. So I'm surprised that this one isn't doing the same thing for you.
0: Yeah, I honestly I don't think that this one is giving me as much smoke as the Johnny Walker. It's not giving me as much flavor on the finish. I'm going to give this a five on the finish. Wow. I think we're going to
1: be pretty fairly divided on this one. So that brings us to overall balance. I'm going to give it a seven on balance. And here's why the nose really sticks out to me as an underwhelming experience where the taste and the finish I thought were fantastic. So I can't say that it was consistent all the way across the board. So I'm giving it a seven on overall balance.
0: Yeah, I'm going to give it a six. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I should give it a seven it it was honest when i when i you know took in the nose i thought to myself man there's not much going on here <laughs> and then i drank it and there wasn't much going on there <laughs> um so i'll i'll give it a 6 on balance it, you know it's it's well balanced but not in a good way wow all right so that brings us to
1: our last category which is overall value now a fifth of shivas regal will put you back 32.99 in the state of ohio and this is to be quite honest with you a sweet spot for me because when it comes to blended scotches that are widely distributed, I even said last week I'd be willing to pay somewhere between 30 and 34 for Johnny Walker Black, and that's exactly where this sits. Is this the best whiskey you can buy? No. Is it the best whiskey you can buy at the price point? Maybe not. But for a really pleasant, really sweet, entry-level scotch, I think this is a really great value, and I'm going to give it an
0: 8.5 on value. I think that this is going to be our most disparate score on a whiskey we've ever had. Wow, that's surprising to me. Yeah, I'm going to give this a two on value. What? Um, a two? It's not a good whiskey, man. Wow, man. I'm I'm genuinely shocked. You don't like this? I would drink fifteen dollar Heaven Hill any day over this. Well, yeah,
1: but like, again, we that's that's apples to oranges in a way. Like
0: if we're comparing it to other scotches, right, which is what I, we did with Johnny Walker. I would drink thirty-eight dollar Johnny Walker any day over this. I would. I would pay an extra six or seven dollars for that. Absolutely any day. There was a lot more going on. It was much more complex. Mm, wow. I. I don't I think would, it was. I don't think it was more complex at all. Like, and I
1: think if we go back and listen to our review, I, I'm pretty sure we both agreed that we didn't think it was a very complex
0: whiskey. Yes. So, and, and that's what makes me sad about this one. So it's even <laughs> less. Th- th- so you're saying this one is even less complex. There's, there's nothing going on here, Bob.
1: Wow. Yeah, so we're going to be very, very, very divided on this. Brad is coming out to a 22 out of 50, and I'm coming out to a 35 and a half. You're wrong, Bob. <laughs> which brings our final average out to a 28.75 or a 57 and a half out of 100. Wow, I am shocked. This is a below 60 whiskey, according to our average. I, I strongly disagree with this.
0: I strongly disagree as well. It should be a 50 to 55. Man. Well, Brad, thanks again for tanking our average. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it's not like it's a horrific whiskey. Yeah, you know, if somebody offered it to me, I wouldn't turn my nose up at it. But it's not very good. I would never purchase it on my own. Well, I'll tell you what.
1: If you are looking to get rid of the rest of that bottle of Shivas Regal, I will gladly take it off your hands, sir. You can have it, sir. And I hope you understand that that sir was a very derisive sir. All right, whatever, man. So we are clearly divided when it comes to Shivas Regal 12, but I think we're probably less divided on the Shawshank Redemption. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about that 1994 classic?
0: Yeah, it's a terrible movie, and we
1: both agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to it. All right, so that was Shivas Regal 12, a whiskey that we are highly, highly divided on.
0: Yeah, that whiskey was crap, Bob. Just yeah, I, just being honest with you. Crap. I, I'm
1: I'm really sure. Sh- That's the first thing that I think I've ever heard you say is like absolute swill.
0: Yeah. Even the ones you don't like. Yeah. I don't think you've ever gone that harshly on. Well, it's hard because scotch you're going to pay more money for. And if, yeah. if I'm going to pay more money for something, I don't want it to be tasteless. And so if this was a bourbon that I paid $13 for, I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. I expected that. But you know, I paid $30, $32, $33 for this. I, <laughs> that's, that's- you, you know what? I, I
1: stand corrected because I'm pretty sure you gave Basil Hayden's like a 5 out of 50 <laughs> or something. So I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that the guy that's willing to give something a 5 is having harsh opinions about this. <laughs> That's
0: true. I totally forgot about Basil Hayden. I think <laughs> I'd put it out of my memory.
1: Yeah, I think so too.
0: All right, so let's
1: get back into Shawshank Redemption. Before we took a break, we were talking about how the the sort of code of prison life in this movie is the suppression of emotions. And I think that comes out really, really early on when Andy's bus arrives at the prison and all the prisoners are mocking them as fresh fish. And they're taking bets on which one of the guys is going to break first. And they land on, you know, this one guy that they're making fun of for being overweight. And he is the one that breaks and he starts crying. And the guards come to see what's going on because it's after lights out and he won't stop being hysterical. And they drag him out of his cell and they beat him so badly that he eventually dies in the infirmary. And what I want to focus on is what happens after that, because the next day they're all eating breakfast. Or whatever, you know, however long it's been. They're all eating breakfast. And Andy finds out that the guy died and he says, what was his name? And one of the guys that comes to be his friends, eventually he looks at him and says, what does it matter what his name was? He's dead. And the way he says it indicates to me that he's dead so he doesn't matter anymore. And the way this guy's been living his life behind bars is like, I don't need to know that guy's identity because he doesn't matter to me anymore. He's dead. And in prison, you have to look at people like that. And what I love about where the movie goes from there is that over the course of a number of years, Andy introduces this concept of hope into everyone's life. And I think that by the time that their friend Brooks kills himself, Morgan Freeman actually says the reverse of that line, which is he should have died in here. Because I think that they come to understand that prison does give people an identity, whereas at the beginning of the movie, they were looking at it as prison that as a place that kind of takes your identity away from you. But. When Brooks dies, they see that he was a guy who was utterly alone and not surrounded by any sort of friends or familiar territory. And they realized, yeah, he should have died in here because at least here he was a person who had value and worth.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing for me was when his soon-to-be friend said, you know, what does it matter? He's dead. I didn't take that as a heartless statement. The way that actor delivered it and props to him for being a great supporting actor Mm -hmm. I thought that he delivered the line in a sense of, I actually do care about it, but I need to put up this persona. I need to put up this wall to act like I don't actually care about it, even though I really do feel bad that I bet on the guy who ended up dying because he was so sad and so distraught about being put in prison. I think
1: that's a good point, and I, I don't think it takes away from my point any either. It's it's two different ways of looking at the same thing, and I think it still gets us back to this place where we can acknowledge that, at least in the first part of the movie, the honor code of the prison is, like, keeping your mouth shut and not allowing any of your emotions or your thoughts to spill out.
0: Yeah, and, and it's a direct, you know, it's a direct opposition to last week's episode in Fight Club. You know, his name was Robert Paulson. It's in death that we find our true identity. Yeah, it is. It's
1: complete antithesis to that. And I think I want to segue here, Brad, into talking about the sequence where Brooks kills himself. Now, Brooks is an old man who gets out of prison after 50 years. You know, he's hardly ever seen an automobile. You know, can I say say something real quick?
0: Yeah, I guess something that's surprising about the movie, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, there was like a lot of really old guys in this movie and and I understand that they probably use that to show what a life sentence means or a double life sentence like hey this could be Andy in 70 years. But for some reason I was like thrown off real hard when when like Brooks showed up and he's old 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 and he's not the only one there's a few other people you see in the periphery that are like really really old guys. Yeah. And well and I think that kind of gets to the
1: question of like what kind of prison is this because You never see a prison fight break out. No one ever gets shanked like there's no all the prisoners are pretty much friends with each other except for the sisters who go around and take people by force. But other than that, like this is the most unrealistic prison I've ever seen because they never (laughs) get any new arrivals that are under 40. And maybe this is just the kind of prison in in the fictional world of the movie where they send people who are less likely to be violent offenders but that's not how prison really works.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. But the interesting thing is that they set it up as a prison where, like, you have to have friends or you're going to get raped and die. Or Right. So, like, they set it up as a really violent prison, but they never, other than the sisters, they never really deliver on that violence.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point, and, you know, as evidenced by the fact that a guy like Brooks can just get along super fine in the prison for 50 years. Yeah. So, back to Brooks, though. Like, he gets out of prison And it's this really, really sad sequence where you see him struggling to keep up with the modern world around him. And eventually, you know, he says, I I don't I don't like it here anymore. I don't want to stay.
2: Maybe I should get me a gun and rob the foodway so they'd send me home. I could shoot the manager while I was at it. Sort of like a, a bonus. I guess I'm too old for that sort of nonsense anymore. I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss, not for an old crook like me. And he hangs himself.
1: To me, you know, it's a hard. It's probably the hardest sequence in the whole movie to watch. But I also think it might be the best. I think it might even be better than Andy's prison break because it is just so well done. And it really hammers home the point that inside these prison walls, like Red says, guys become institutionalized. At least inside the prison, they are someone. And then when they're thrust back out into the world, they have no community. They have no identity. They have nowhere to go. Brad, what did you think of that whole sequence? The story of
0: Brooks is so hard because you look at it and you see I I don't know you see this sense of should a man you know or or a woman should any human being be punished for an entire lifetime for what they did yeah And, and you know yes there's certain things that you look at and you go yes they deserve to be punished for the rest of their life but at some point you look at it and you go man like Is what he did really that bad that you would send him to prison for 70, 80 years? Hmm. I just, it gives you a sense of compassion for the person who's an 80-year-old man. I'm going to guess that Brooks was in his, you know, late 70s to early 80s when he got let out. And you just go, man, like at some point, you know, when does human dignity come into play? And you just say, you know what, let's just let this man live his days out in peace.
1: Well, and that's exactly what happens with Morgan Freeman towards the end of the film. You know, when he finally gets let out on parole, it's after he's basically given up any hope of impressing this parole board. And he has this great quote when they ask him if he's been rehabilitated, and he starts talking about what he would do with his younger self if he could talk to him. And he says that, that kid's long gone, and this broken down old man is all that's left.
2: I look back on the way I was then, a young stupid kid who committed that terrible crime i want to talk to him i want to try to talk some sense to him tell him the way things are but i can't that kid's long gone and this old man is all that's left
1: and It really hammers home the point that that what prison is about, at least in the United States, is not rehabilitation. It's really about have we broken you down enough that we can let you, you know, scamper out of here with your tail between your legs?
0: Oh, for sure. I absolutely loved the Brooks sequence. I I absolutely love when he carves into the woodwork, Brooks was here. Mm -hmm. Because I think it gives a sense of importance to the value that individual human lives have that we all have this search for a sense of meaning that like that like I was here and I mattered and it's just so sad that his
1: his last act of establishing an identity was to carve into the wood you know I was here I mattered I had an identity and to hang himself right from that rafter.
0: I thought that when Morgan Freeman was placed in the exact same halfway house, I thought it was doing disrespect and dishonor to Brooks. How so? I just, I really struggled with the fact that it said, you know, Brooks was here and so was Red. It basically is what, you know, Morgan Freeman carved into the wood. And I just, for some reason, there was something about that that I was like, yeah, you know, you were here, Red, but you had a meaning and a purpose to your life that that Brooks didn't have. And to me, I, I felt like it was a stretch from a, from a filmmaker standpoint to say, yeah, you know, 10, 15 years after Brooks died and they hadn't, you know, sanded over Brooks was here. And so to me, that was a stretch. But even beyond that, I just go, you know what, like, I get that you were here as well, but you had something to live for. You had hope. And it's almost disrespectful to Brooks who had no hope. Well, I don't know if it's disrespectful or if it's
1: redemptive. And I hate to use that word because it's like a, a play on the title in a way. But that's what the whole movie is about is, you know, Morgan Freeman is it's, it's almost tacky and cheesy that they put him in the same room. But it's a way of showing the audience he is in the exact same mental, emotional spot that Brooks was in. And he says it and he says the only thing that's keeping me going at this point is this thing that I have to do for Andy And Andy gave Morgan Freeman's character the hope that Brooks didn't have. And so, you know, that room, in a way, is almost like a sort of purgatory. Brooks goes into that space and has no hope, and it claims his life. And Morgan Freeman is able to go into that same sort of hell, but because he has something to hold on to, something that's capable of driving him forward, that's what allows him to defeat it, to leave that room behind him and leave his mark on it.
2: Get busy living or get busy dying. That's damn right. For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. A role violation. Of course, I doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that. Not for an old crook like me. in context, please.
0: Yeah, I I mean I there's nothing I can disagree with there. I I think the thing for me was I just felt like it was the, the like that was probably the only part of the movie where I was kind of like, really? Yeah. Like like you're going there, it just kind of felt cheesy to me. Yeah, I get that. And there's a few sequences in the movie that I'm just like, okay.
1: And and the one for me that really stands out is the opera sequence, which has become really really famous. But I've never quite understood Andy's motivations there. You know, like he he just found out that he got this huge grant from the state to start this library. And even the guards are like, good job, Andy. And in that moment, Andy decides to do something, I guess, to to offer the prisoners a sense of freedom by playing this opera record and locking himself in the warden's office to play this record. And I've just never quite understood that sequence. And I especially don't understand why every single prisoner in the whole prison stops what they're doing to look up at the sky, like, like up at the loudspeaker. It's like, don't you think maybe one or two of them didn't care for opera and didn't really feel like listening to it? But it's it's one of those scenes where you watch it on TV and it's like, wow, how
0: powerful. And then in the context of the movie, it's kind of like, did we really need that scene Oh, I mean, that scene made more sense to me than than the you know Morgan Freeman and Brooks scene. I, I think for the fact that it was just so jarring and out of the norm that even somebody who just doesn't give a rip about opera would be like, "Man, I've been in prison here for 10, 15, 20, 30 years." Right. And I' have you know, like, well, I mean, I've only ever heard, you know discipline and a lack of grace and a lack of anything loving or kind, and all of a sudden they hear opera. Like, what the heck?
1: And I think that scene exists to set up the scene that comes after it, which is where Andy starts talking about, like, the beauty of music, which was another, like, oh, my gosh. But he starts talking about the beauty of music because he says music has the ability to give you hope. Right. And that's where Andy finally starts to lean into, I need something more to carry me through my time here, and eventually leads to his time in solitary confinement for what he's been doing, and then he
0: gets the resolve to break out. Something I love about this podcast, I feel like so often in these episodes, you or I will pose these questions of like, well, why did they do this? And then within five minutes, we've like answered our own question. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) It's nice
1: to talk these things out. It really is. And I think this is the kind of movie that has appealed to like millions and millions of people, but there's still things we can analyze in it. You said that you wanted to talk about why exactly this movie is as popular and as famous as it is. And I think we've leaned into that a little bit, just talking about the logistics of it being on TV all the time and the way it's set up in a kind of episodic nature. But at the end of the day, I think it's just a really accessible, easy movie for people to see a great moral lesson in.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because if you look at like the AFI top 100, those movies are chosen by, you know, self-professed professionals and film critics and the like. But when you look at the IMDb top 250 list, this has topped the list for a very 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 long time. And in order for it to top the list, people have to watch the movie and then and then go on IMDb and then rank it highly. And and what I'm trying to say is it takes like willful actions for them to go and rank this so highly. So I guess for me the question is what is it about this movie that makes the average person go you know, I'm going to go on IMDb and give this a high score because, you know, it's a perfect movie. Like, Like, it takes a lot of will to make this the highest rated movie on IMDb.
1: I think part of it is the politics behind it, honestly. Like, because it hit number one on IMDb, and then within a few years, The Godfather had overtaken it. And then over the course of a couple more years, The Shawshank Redemption comes back in prominence as number one. And I think part of that is people's reaction to being told... You have to love X movie. You know, you have to love Citizen Kane. You have to love The Godfather. There's people out there that feel like they're missing something because they don't like The Godfather. When you tell someone you have to give The Godfather a 10 out of 10, it's the best movie ever, people are going to rail against that. And I think The Shawshank Redemption is one of those films that everyone has seen, everyone at least likes. And because it's there's such a consensus And there's not this baggage or this weight behind it that it's the greatest movie of all time. I do think that's why we've kind of seen people say, yeah, I'm way more willing to give this movie a 10 than The Godfather.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess what you're trying to say is The Godfather might be the art critic's 10 out of 10 choice, but the common person would choose Shawshank you know, 10 out of 10 times. You know, I'd
1: be really interested to see how that goes because The Godfather was kind of the same way in that it was the highest grossing movie of all time, like for a couple of years before Jaws beat it out. So it has an insane popularity. I just think that over the years, it's come to have this reputation that critics fawn over it. And I think deservedly so, but Shawshank never had that. And so I think it's kind of like the people's underdog movie. And it might be slightly overrated because of that, you know, on IMDb, but it goes to show what a movie that teaches a lesson like this can do for the masses. I think that takes us to our final scores.
0: And I want to hear, Brad, what would you give this movie out of 10? And would you recommend it? This is a 9 out of 10 movie, and I would 100% recommend it if there's somebody who actually hasn't seen it. Like, it's a phenomenal movie. It's really well paced. Even though it kind of feels slow at points, the episodic nature keeps drawing, it keeps re-drawing you back into the movie, back into the story. Tim Robbins turns in a phenomenal performance. Morgan Freeman turns in a phenomenal performance. Bob Gunton per- turns in a phenomenal performance. Like, you can't ask for more out of a movie. It's really well done. There's a few things here or there that would keep me from giving it a 10 out of 10. But yeah, it's it's a great movie.
1: Yeah, it is a great movie, and I would also give it a 9 out of 10. I don't think it's perfect, and I honestly, I wish I would have been able to see this movie when it first premiered in 1994, because I can't tell if it has just become the template for every other prison redemption story since then, or if even back then it seemed a little bit cliched. You know, it, it it's one of those movies that you go into it, and it has this familiar sense to it, even if you've never seen it before. It feels like you know... The characters, you know, the story, you know where it's going, and it's just so darn accessible and like instant gratification that you just go along with it. You're sucked up in its currents, basically. But it is a little tacky at parts. And, you know, after 25 years, I think it's okay that we can say that about the movie. That doesn't take away from how great certain parts of it are. And it definitely is a nine out of ten. But we want to know what you have to say. So get on social media, tweet at us. Send us a message on Instagram. Call us. Send a voicemail. We want to hear what you have to say about the Shawshank Redemption. Brad, where can they find us on social media?
0: If you have been listening to this podcast, you should know by now that (laughs) you can find us at... (laughs) At Film Whiskey. With an
1: E. At Film Whiskey. Or you can call our call-in line. Leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on air. The number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. Next week, we will be back talking about the 1982 classic, E.T., The Extraterrestrial.
0: Bob, I don't feel like we've delved into movies from the 80s very much yet.
1: No, and I'm super excited because this is like one of my all-time favorites. So
0: can I also inform you that next week when you ask me the question, Brad, have you seen this movie before? My answer will be no. What? Are you serious? I've never seen E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Are you? Brad, no. No. (laughs) are you pulling my chain
1: for the film and whiskey podcast I'm Brad G I am taken aback (laughs) and we'll see you next week Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. Oh, try that again, man.
0: Yeah, that was really (laughs) rough. Uh, I'm Brad G. I'm Brad G, and I've been smoking for 72 years. I'm Brad G, and I got a bingo. (laughs) Have you given Robots Roundtable a shot yet? This is the new show where the hosts from the Robots Radio Network podcast, all of your favorite hosts, get together every week. And they talk a little bit more deeply about some of the things going on in the games and the things that they're enjoying recently. So if you're looking for a fun show talking about games, entertainment with all of your favorite hosts and also a really wacky competition at the end of each episode... Give Robots Roundtable a shot. It's available on iTunes and Spotify and basically everywhere.